He likes them standing, doesn't he? Please open your scripture to Hebrews. And I know we're in chapter 7, but I'd like you to open to chapter 10. So chapter 10, verse 19. Many of God's inspired books have a great therefore in them. The most famous is probably Romans 12 that has that great therefore as God's beloved. Offer your bodies as living sacrifices. This is the great therefore of Hebrews, of the book of Hebrews. Look with me at verse 19 and following. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. This is the great, therefore, of Hebrews. The great conclusion to what he has begun back in chapter 5, verse 1. Really, you can take it all the way back to chapter 3, verse 1, when the author there says, Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. And I want you to, if you're still there in in chapter 10, if you're an underliner, to underline the words, let us draw near. Because that's the question that chapters 5 through 10 is trying to answer. How do you draw near to God? How do you get close to God? How are sinful people to enter into a relationship with a perfect, holy God? If you're here today and, and you're not a believer, if you're not a Christian, if you haven't given your faith to Christ, I, I love that you're here. And I hope you come back every week. I hope that you feel welcome. I hope that you feel loved and cared for. I'm glad that you're here. But maybe you think that drawing near to God means being a good person. Being a moral person. You know, if I can just swear less or do some more good than bad, I can draw near to God. Or, you know, or maybe being earnest about religion or or earnest about spirituality. That, you know, I, I'm, I'm investigating these things. That, that you're drawing near to God. Or perhaps you think that drawing near to God is, is going to church. Like today. You're drawing near to God. Nearer to God, right? If you're a believer here, if you're a Christian here, maybe that's what you think too. You know, I'm, I'm drawing nearer to God because I go to church. Or maybe we add things like, you know, I draw near to God 
when I do my devotions. Or, or maybe when you pray, I'm drawing nearer to God. Or maybe it's obedience. You know, if I can just obey God, I will draw nearer to God. Or maybe it's something like listening to worship music. You know, we, we feel nearer to God when many of us, when we're listening to music, it stirs us. If you were a Jew 2,000 years ago, you might say some very similar things. You know, I draw near to God by going to the temple, by offering sacrifices, by being consistently coming before the priest. But what this whole section, chapters 5 through 10, and our text is going to teach us today, for anybody... For everybody, there's only one way to draw near to God. And that is through belief in the completed work of our high priest, Jesus Christ. So now turn back with me to chapter 7. As we read our text for today, the whole chapter. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither a beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these are all descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descendants from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but on the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for it is under it the people receive the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than the one named after the order of of Abraham, of Aaron. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from the one from, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. 
This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is written, for it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it is not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who is made perfect forever. Father God, Spirit, help us to make sense of this. Lord, you tell us in your word that your thoughts are greater than our thoughts. And it is no more evident than here as we lose our way in your thoughts. Lord, help us to understand this well. Help me to preach this clearly. In Jesus' name, amen. The author, let us remind ourselves, is is writing again to an audience of converted Jews that are tempted because of persecution, to go back to the old ways. That's the context of Hebrews. Back to the old ways of drawing near to God. Back to the old sacrifices. Back to the old location, the temple. Back to the old covenant. Back to the old priesthood. They're tempted to go back. And the author systematically in these chapters deals with each one of those temptations. The author systematically wants to prove how much greater Christ is to each one of those. So he says, he he will explain in chapter 10 how much greater Christ's sacrifice is. He will explain how much greater 
uh, Christ's performance was in a greater temple, greater tabernacle in chapter 9. In, in chapter 8, he'll prove that, that Jesus created a better covenant. And then here in chapter 7, he is proving to those people that Christ is a better priest, a greater priest, a more superior priest. Don't go back to the old priesthood. Stick with Jesus. The author is picking up, back up his line of thought from chapter 5, verse 10. You remember we have that great pause there, and he's picking back up his line of thinking here. Back in chapter 9, if you remember, he laid the foundation of Jesus being qualified to be a priest. Right? This was a couple weeks ago. So remind us about the three qualifications of a priest. You had to be chosen from among men. You had to be human. And he proves that Jesus was flesh as well as God. Second, you had to be appointed by God. And back in chapter 5, he, he proves that God appointed Christ as priest. And that you had to have the proper lineage. This is the biggie for the Jew. This is huge. This is everything. If you don't have the right lineage, you cannot be a priest. You had to be of the line of Levi. And in chapter 5, verse 10, where he leaves off his thinking, he introduces this other lineage, this other priestly lineage of Melchizedek. Jesus is a priest in the lineage of Melchizedek. And that is what our author wants to draw our attention to in the first three verses of our text here, verses 1, 2, and 3 in chapter 7. These verses, actually, he's just summarizing Genesis 14, that encounter that Abraham has with Melchizedek. Abraham comes back, if you remember, from rescuing his his nephew Lot from the five kings that that took him way up north into the country of, of Dan. And on his way back after rescuing his nephew, he makes his way through the valley of Shiva. When the king of Salem... Melchizedek comes out to meet him. And several things happen there that I want us to keep in mind because the author in chapter 7 has these things in mind. Several things happen in that encounter. First, Melchizedek blesses Abraham. You remember when he comes out and he blesses Abraham and Abraham receives that blessing? Secondly, Abraham then tithes to Melchizedek, right? He takes a tenth of his plunder and he gives it to Melchizedek. Thirdly, we find out that Melchizedek is not just a king, a king of Salem, but he's also a priest of the Most High God. So that's very interesting that he's both king and priest. I encourage you to come to our time before the service in Sunday school. We're going through 1 Samuel and we will see that that very thing is what loses Saul his kingship. He tries to be a priest. And fourth, 
that Melchizedek is this, this mysterious figure. Verse 3 describes him without parents, without genealogy, without beginning or end. Now, we're going to come back to that in a minute, but that's something you have to keep in mind. He's a mysterious figure. And what I want to draw our eyes towards in verse 3 is the word resembling. Look at that with me. Having without father or mother genealogy, having neither beginning or days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God. He continues a priest forever. Melchizedek resembles Christ. Melchizedek is like Christ. The author is telling us that Melchizedek is a foreshadow, a pattern, a type of Christ. If you've been here for any, any, any length of time, you've heard that the way to read the Old Testament is, is through the lens of Christ. And one of the lenses is this, there are these, these breadcrumbs that tell us about what Christ, this Messiah, this promised person is going to be like. And here we have Melchizedek being one of those breadcrumbs, pointing us towards Christ. There are many patterns in the Old Testament like this. The famous ones are the Passover, the bronze snake. You remember that in in Numbers? Jesus even uses that to say that like the bronze snake, lifted up, the Son of Man will be lifted up. The miraculous birth of Samuel back in, in Sunday school, we talked about how that prefigures the birth of Christ. You have the, you know, Moses being the prophet, like Christ being the prophet, David being a king, and this, this, this promised person will be a king. And here, the author is saying that Melchizedek, inserted in Genesis 14, intentionally by the Holy Spirit, so that he could prefigure the priesthood of Jesus Christ. D.A. Carson, the theologian, has said, Melchizedek is one of the greatest evidences of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. God orchestrated Abraham's encounter with Melchizedek so that Moses would write about him. Then one day, King David, doing his devotions in Genesis, would reflect on that encounter and write Psalm 110. So that the Hebrews, the author of the Hebrews, would read Psalm 110 to prove that Jesus is a priest. And that is the argument that runs throughout this chapter. Jesus is a greater priest. Jesus is a greater priest. Again, remember the context. Those Jews tempted to go back to the physical priesthood because of that persecution. And the author says, why go back to an inferior priesthood? Why would you go back? And he proves that inferiority in verses 4 through 10. That's the proof that the author of Hebrews is, is putting forth. And, and I want you to follow the logic you have to follow the logic. You have to lean in a little off the back of you and follow the logic here. The basic premise is found in verse 7. Verse 7 is the inferior always 
blessed is blessed by the superior. This is a hard premise for us to grasp today. We don't think of these terms of superior and inferior very often. I mean, think about it. Young men rarely today go and ask for the blessing of the father anymore, right? I mean, it's a cute tradition when we do, but we don't really take it seriously. I mean, if the father doesn't put a blessing on this, it's not like we're not going to get married. That's exactly how, how Jacob felt when he wanted to marry Rachel. And Laban said, no. He took it so seriously, the blessing of Laban, that he was willing to work for 14 years to get his blessing. The inferior always seeks the blessing of the superior. So here, Abraham receives a blessing from Melchizedek, right? Abraham is, the author's argument is, Abraham is, is lesser than Melchizedek. Also in the tithe. Abraham tithes to Melchizedek, and he only tithe to the greater. Thus, again proving that Abraham is lesser than Melchizedek, which, which by the way, is, is absolutely astounding to the Jews to even think about that, that the father of their faith was lesser than anybody. So this is a huge, big deal. But that's not even the author's main point here. The author's main point is in verses 9 and 10. Since Levi was a descendant of Abraham, in his loins is how the the Bible puts it, then Abraham by tithing to Melchizedek, Levi, in a way, it says, is tithing to Melchizedek. And since the people tithe to one that is greater than themselves, Levi is actually inferior to Melchizedek. And thus... Since Jesus is a priest in Melchizedek's line, Jesus' priesthood is superior to the Levitical priesthood. Greater in lineage. You see, lineage is really, really important. I read this week about Clark James Gable, a man who overdosed on drugs this week. Read it online. The only reason that he's mentioned is because he's in the lineage of the actor Clark Gable. See, a person dies every 11 minutes of a drug overdose in the United States. 130 people a day drug overdose. But Clark James Gable, his overdose was mentioned because his lineage is is kind of important in our culture. And so it's mentioned. Lineage is still important, but nothing compared to the Jews. To the Jews, lineage was everything. If you wanted to be a priest and you weren't in Levi's line, you could not be a priest 
no matter how loving, how caring, how nurturing, how empathetic, how, how, how drawn to the priesthood you were, how much the people look to you and maybe not even their, their priest, you could not be a priest if you were not in Levi's line. Christ embodied all those things, empathy, love, caring, nurturing, compassion, everything and more. But he wasn't a descendant of Levi. Verses 13 and 14, that's why they're there, prove that point. It says, no one from the tribe of Judah ever served at the altar. So Jesus could not be a priest in that line. But the author here is proving that he is a priest in the order of, in the lineage of Melchizedek. And that is a superior lineage to be a priest from. But that's not all. It's not just superior because of the lineage. It's superior because of of the duration. He says it's it's a superior priesthood because it comes from Melchizedek. And he's just proved that Melchizedek's priesthood is is superior to Levi's, but it's also superior in a second way. It's superior in duration. If you look at verse 17, it says that Jesus is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, quoting Psalm 110. A priest forever. This illustration is kind of hard for me to to say, but I'm going to say it anyway. When something is good, you want it to last forever. Tom Brady has been the quarterback of the Patriots for 19 years, going on 20 years. And it's been a really good time to be a Patriots fan. I'm not going to say amen, but... (laughs) I mean, it's been a great time, right? I mean, 19 years. I, I went online and, again... Hard for me to do, but they have a 784 winning percentage in their division. A 784. That's almost eight, t- eight wins out of 10. From 2001 to 2018, they had 18 consecutive winning seasons. That's amazing. Including one undefeated season. Eight straight AFC championship appearances between 2011 and 2018. Eight straight. Nine Super Bowl appearances. Half the time they've been in the Super Bowl. And six of those wins. When something is good, you don't want it to end. That's what we're all on the edge of our seats on, right? Brady's 41, 42. I don't want this to end. Don't retire. Belichick, just keep him around. Let's keep this thing going, right? You don't want it to end. It's good. And that's the similar point that that the author of Hebrews is trying to make with Jesus in his eternal priesthood. It's so good. Praise God, it never ends. It's eternal. Look at verse 23 with me. He says there, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, Christ, holds his priesthood permanently. Because he continues forever. Jesus' priesthood is greater because it's permanent. It does last forever. 
And he proves this once again through Genesis 14 and Psalm 110. If you look there at at verse 3 in chapter 7, he again takes us back to Genesis 14. And he says that Melchizedek resembles Christ in his eternality. Why? Because there's no mention of his mother or father or genealogy. There's no mention of his genealogy. I told you earlier that we would come back and talk about this mystery, and here it is. What the author is saying is the absence of those details is huge. To us, we just kind of skip over it. When we read Genesis 14 in our devotions, we just kind of go, okay, there it is. A Jew would stop and go, oh, what's going on here? Abraham, the most important person in my faith, is inferior to this guy. And I don't know who this guy is. He has no credentials. I need his credentials. Those credentials, the genealogy that's missing, is conspicuous. And that silence is deafening for the Jew. The Sherlock Holmes mystery, Silver Blaze. Any Sherlock Holmes fans here? A couple? In the mystery Silver Blaze, it is a story of a disappearance of a racehorse. And it's believed that a stranger came in and stole this racehorse. But Holmes is able to pin the horse's disappearance on the horse's trainer. How? Because the dog at the stable didn't bark on the night of the theft. And in Holmes' own words, he said, I had grasped the significance of the silence of the dog. The absence of parents or genealogy where Melchizedek is concerned is significant. The author is encouraging us to grasp the deafening silence here. D.A. Carson is again helpful. He says, the silence regarding Melchizedek is deafening. Every important figure in Jewish history has a genealogy. The bigger the genealogy, the more important the person. Think of the importance of King David. A whole book of the Bible is written so that we know his genealogy, the book of Ruth. Consider Jesus. So critical that four whole Gospels are dedicated to his life, two of which contain genealogies. He has two genealogies. One, Matthew tracing his lineage back to Abraham. And the Lucan genealogy, do you remember where that traces his lineage back to? Let me read it to you. Jesus, son of Seth, son of Adam, son of God. The presence of genealogies indicate the importance of the person. But with Melchizedek, nothing. And that absence is deafening. So much so that when King David was doing his devotions one day, you know, every king, I don't know if you know this, but every king was to take the scrolls of the Pentateuch and copy them for himself so that he'd have a personal copy. He was the only person that had a personal copy of the Bible. 
And it was his job to read that over and over and over so that he would be a good king. And so David was doing his devotions in Genesis 14 one day, and he comes across Melchizedek. And he is struck. No history, no lineage, no mention of birth or death. It seems to David like this guy is eternal. And so the Holy Spirit inspires him to take up his pen and begin to write. And he begins to write this. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. I think David knew he was writing about the Messiah. I can't prove that. The coming Messiah was to be an eternal priest resembling Melchizedek. And Jesus' eternal priesthood is superior to the Levitical priesthood because look at verse 25. It tells us right there. Consequently, because he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Jesus, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Because he intercedes for us, our salvation is secure. Let me say that again, because that's, that's critical. Because Jesus intercedes for us, our salvation is secure. Because he continually intercedes, we are saved to the uttermost. That's the description that, that is in Scripture. That's how, how Scripture describes it. John MacArthur explains it this way. The security of our salvation is Jesus' perpetual intercession for us. We can no more keep ourselves saved as we can save ourselves in the first place. But just as Jesus has the power to save us, he has the power to keep us. Constantly, eternally, perpetually, Jesus intercedes for us before the Father. Whenever we sin, he says to the Father, he turns to the Father and says, put that on my account. My sacrifice has paid for it. Through Jesus Christ, we're able to stand in the presence of his glory, blameless and with great joy. You know where our joy comes from? This verse. If you struggle with joy, memorize this verse and tell yourself this verse over and over and over again. See, our confession and repentance, though necessary in the Christian life, cannot remove our sin. Let me say that again. Our confession and repentance, though necessary in the Christian life, cannot actually remove our sin. What you are doing is not removing your sin. What removes our sin is not something we do, but what Christ has already done for us. And that brings us to our final point. Jesus has a greater cure. That's, that's, that, this is everything. Jesus is a greater priest with a greater duration, with a greater cure. I don't remember a whole lot about my biological father. My parents divorced when I was five. He died when I was 15, and I saw him intermittently during summers and vacations, things like that. One of the memories I do have of him is he always had a cooler with him. 
you know, a cooler. And he had some drinks in there and sandwiches and fruit. And, and I do remember these little vials of clear liquid in that cooler. What I later learned is that was insulin. My dad was a diabetic. And he had to, from time to time, give himself shots of insulin. See, without those daily shots, my, my dad couldn't live. Those shots did not cure my father of diabetes, but made living with diabetes possible. They kept him going. These shots made it so that he could live, but he needed those shots. The sacrifices of the Levitical priest are a lot like shots of insulin. It kept them going. When they take offerings up to the temple, it, it would keep them from dying of their disease of sin. It would allow them to live, but it could not cure them. That's what the author is telling us in verse 11. He says, you know, if, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? If, if, if that was good, if that was, if that was enough, why Christ? He goes on to say in verse 18 here that the law made nothing perfect. The law was, was never intended to save. It was intended to as shots of insulin to keep the wrath of God coming, from coming down on people. It was intended to, to point to a, a greater thing that's coming. A greater cure. So what hope do we have? How do we draw near to God and not die? And the author says very succinctly, it's through Jesus Christ, our high priest. Verse 19 calls it a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Brothers and sisters, we draw near to God through Jesus Christ. Not through living an obedient life. Not by daily devotions and prayer, however necessary and wonderful they are. Not through being good or going to church. You will never draw near to God by going to church your whole life. There are a lot of really, really good people who don't know that. We need to tell them that. That the church does not draw near, help you draw near to God. Jesus Christ does. If you want to draw near to God, you need to recognize that you need a cure and not just a shot of insulin. And Jesus is that cure. That's exactly what uh, verses 26 and 27 are there for. For it is indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sin, then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he sacrificed up himself. I want you to underline that, once for all. Once for all. That's it. That's the cure. 
Because those are life. You see, we do have a disease. It's not diabetes, but it's like diabetes. Diabetes will eventually kill you. You die of diabetes. You die slowly, but you die of diabetes. And sin is just like that. Maybe you don't notice it now. If you've had diabetes and you're, you've only had diabetes a couple of years, you don't notice it. Maybe that's how you are with sin right now. You don't notice that you're dying. But the Bible says that sin is death. And unless something is done, we will die of it. And God did something. He intervened. He sent the cure. John 3.16, he loved the world so much that he sent his only son to live this perfect life that we cannot live. To actually obey God, not because he has to or because he was earning God's favor, but because he wanted to. His heart was beating for God's pleasure. And he earned God's righteousness. He earned righteousness before God by living that life. And he, being innocent, allowed himself to be declared guilty. That's what Easter week really brings to the forefront, doesn't it? That's why, that's why I encourage you to come here on Monday, Thursday, and, and Good Friday and, and, and experience anew and in depth how, how Jesus stood silent before a mocking crowd, stood silent before his accusers who said, speak, and he didn't, who was silent as they, as they beat him and punched him and spit on him. He, being perfectly righteous, right, allowed himself to be pointed at and be declared guilty. And he allowed himself to take the punishment for that guilt, agonizing and dying on that cross, enduring separation from God that you and I deserve. We deserve that. He didn't but he substituted himself and said, I will take that punishment for Blake if he will trust in me. And on the third day, he rose from the dead and conquering sin and death, the curse, the Genesis curse, in order to offer a cure to the slow death that you and I are facing. And if you turn and repent from your sins and trust in Jesus, in what Jesus did for you, you will be cured. You see, Jesus is not just a shot of insulin that keeps you going. He gives you a whole new pancreas. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. Spirit, use it. Mold us, shape us, challenge us, encourage us. Thank you for sending your Son, Father. Son, thank you for dying on our behalf. And Spirit, thank you for your work 
which is changing our hearts so we can see the cure, the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.